So this is a podcast for Practical Neurology. Uh, my name is Phil Smith, and I'm talking today to Aaron Berkowitz, who is a resident at the Women's and Brigham Hospital in Boston, USA. He's written a paper with Marty Samuels on the neurology of Sjogren syndrome in this month's Practical Neurology. So thank you, uh, Aaron, for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Phil. And uh, would you mind just summarizing the uh, main messages of the paper, please, for us? Sure. So I think um, in medical school we learn about Sjogren syndrome as a disease that causes dry eyes and, and dry mouth. Um, and it is a disease that actually has a number of neurologic complications that can be associated with it. And so in the paper, the idea was to go through what some of those manifestations are, the most common uh, neurological syndromes one can see in the disorder, but also really to highlight that often the neurologic symptoms and signs can precede any of the uh, dry eyes and dry mouth and more so-called classic symptoms. So that some patients with ultimate diagnosis is Sjogren syndrome may actually present to the neurologist with, say, a neuropathy or present with a myelopathy. And that Sjogren's, in some of those situations, should really be in the differential diagnosis for those patients. So we talk in the paper about which specific neurologic complications are associated with the disease and how to go about working up the possibility of Sjogren's if one is considering it, and then if the diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome is ultimately made as the cause of the neurologic syndrome in question, what some of the treatment options can be in those cases. So you've summarized the, the three main conditions that uh, Sjogren's may present as to a neurologist. Could you just go through those, please? Sure. So. As far as broad categories, the two most common categories to think of from the localization perspective would be peripheral neuropathies and uh, the transverse myelitis. So within the family of peripheral neuropathies, the most common neuropathies seen in Sjogren's syndrome are sensory neuropathies. And the two most common sensor types of sensory neuropathy that are seen are so-called sensory ganglionopathy or sensory ataxic neuropathy and painful small fiber neuropathy. Now, in the largest series, actually, from Japan, I think there are somewhere around 90 patients with Sjogren's-associated neuropathies. Uh, those two I mentioned are the most common, the ganglionopathy and the painful small fiber neuropathy, but they also report a small percentage of trigeminal neuropathies, patients with multiple mononeuropathies, multiple cranial neuropathies, autonomic neuropathies, uh, et cetera. As with, as with any disease, it can cause anything, but the two most common neuropathies, as I said, are ganglionopathy and painful small fiber neuropathy. And then with respect to the central nervous system, again, one can see a number of different complications, but the, the most common Sjogren's associated central nervous system complication is a transverse myelitis. And those tend to be of the longitudinally expensive transverse myelitis type. That is, they tend to span at least three, if not more, uh, spinal levels. And they can present acutely or subacutely and they look on imaging and behave in many ways clinically, like the type of myelitis one sees in, one sees in neuromyelitis optica. And in fact, what large series have shown, or I should say series of in the hundreds of patients have shown, that in patients with Sjogren's syndrome who end up presenting with a myelitis, end up having a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, it's close to 80% of those patients actually have neuromyelitis optica as well. So they have both diseases. And then other types of central nervous system complications one can see 
neuromyelitis optica. So in addition to an isolated or recurrent myelitis, one can see optic neuritis, one can see demyelinating appearing brain lesions that don't quite look like multiple sclerosis, look more like what we would see in neuromyelitis optica. So lesions in the brainstem, lesions close to the cerebral aqueduct and ventricle, lesions in the hypothalamus. So can I just uh, so we take take the neuropathies first of all, and uh, sure. what, I mean, what proportion of a painful small fiber neuropathy or an autonomic neuropathy would be Sjögren syndrome? I mean, how how important is it to to think of Sjögren's and exclude it in in those presentations? I think um, although we know sort of the the reverse statistic of how many patients with Sjogren syndrome or what percentage of them may develop these neuropathies. I don't think there's data, or at least I'm not familiar with data, that, that tells us in those patients with a painful small fiber neuropathy or a ganglionopathy what percent will ultimately have Sjogren syndrome. I think it's believed that a significant enough uh, proportion of those patients could have Sjogren syndrome presenting with a neuropathy syndrome that if one identifies clinically a sensory ganglionopathy or a painful small fiber neuropathy, that evaluating the patient for Sjogren syndrome is certainly warranted in those cases. Okay, and and in the terms of the central uh, condition, you you mentioned tra- well transverse myelitis, longitudinally extensive uh, myelitis. So so that's overlapping then with the Devic syndrome, is it, or are they discrete conditions? That's an excellent question. One that there's there's emerging data that's um, of interest with respect to that question. So patients can present with a transverse myelitis and have no history of anything that would suggest Sjogren syndrome, or maybe they actually had dry eyes or dry mouth but attributed it to something else, or it wasn't important enough to them that uh, they had presented to a physician with those complaints. So in those patients who have an unexplained transverse myelitis, I think looking for Sjogren's is part would be part of the initial workup. And then the question emerges as to whether one should be looking for neuromyelitis optica in those patients. I think that really depends on what the imaging shows. So if the imaging shows what looks to be a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, with more than three uh, spinal levels, I think one would be screening for, for neuromyelitis optica. And then what the, the data suggests is there's a series from uh, a few years ago of, I believe it's somewhere around 100 patients with connective tissue diseases, Sjogren's, lupus, and some, I believe, with vasculitis, who had sort of neuromyelitis optic spectrum disorders. So they either had the full Beck syndrome or they had just the transverse myelitis or just relapsing optic neuritis. And it turned out that nearly 80% of those patients with rheumatologic disease and a neuromyelitis optic type disorder as well, with a close to 80% that actually had positive uh, aquaporin for antibodies, so the serological test for neuromyelitis optica. But if you look kind of in the other direction, so you take patients with uh, neuromyelitis optica and screen them for the Sjogren's antibodies, although a small percentage of somewhere around 15% of those patients have other autoantibodies, so anti-Rho, anti-La, it's very few patients, at least where it's been studied, that actually meet clinical criteria for a disease like lupus or Sjogren's syndrome. So in other words, if a patient has Sjogren's syndrome or lupus develops central nervous system disease, one should really be looking for neuromyelitis optica that can co-occur with the disease. Whereas in the other direction, a patient with neuromyelitis optica may have a whole uh, array of autoantibodies 
that um, may be nonspecific in those cases and not actually representative of a concurrent rheumatologic disease. Okay, thank you. So actually, one one of the things I learned from your co-author, Marty Samuels, was that uh, people with loss of sense of taste, agusia, uh, the most common cause of that in a neurological clinic is Sjogren's syndrome. Uh, any comments on that? It's another interesting feature. These disorders of smell and taste may see a lot of physicians before they see a, before they see a neurologist or may present to a neurologist directly for complaints of problems with smell and taste. Although the, the differential diagnosis for those types of problems is broad, Sjogren's syndrome uh, is something that should certainly be considered. From what little data there is on, on, on this problem, usually those patients, it's not actually a, quote, neurologic phenomenon. It has much more to do with problems with saliva production. So from the literature, it's suggested that if, you know, if a patient presents with problems with their taste, once considering Sjogren's, one should really ask about dry mouth because most of those patients, if the, the loss of taste is due to Sjogren's syndrome, they've had symptoms of dry mouth for quite some time before that. So if we have a patient with uh, small fiber peripheral neuropathy, uh, autonomic neuropathy, transfer myelitis, we're going to undertake some tests. So can you tell us what the three or four key tests are that are going to help us make this diagnosis, please? Sure. So I think most People think of the anti-Rho and anti-La antibodies as a first-pass screening for Sjogren's syndrome, also sometimes called anti-SSA, the Rho antibody, and anti-SSB, the La antibody. SS standing for Sjogren's syndrome, presumably. That's right. That's right. So the question comes up, how sensitive are these uh, for the disease? And the large series is looking at all comers with Sjogren's syndrome that's proven by uh, salivary gland biopsy, not not looking specifically at patients with neurologic complications. So if you look at all patients, the large series suggests a wide range uh, in how sensitive those antibodies are. So anti-SSA has been suggested to be maybe as high as 75% sensitive, but possibly as low even as uh, 33%. And with anti-SSB, similar range, somewhere in the 20s to 50% sensitivity. So there have been smaller studies looking at patients with Sjogren-associated neuropathy, a neuropathy and then Sjogren proven by biopsy, what percentage of those patients actually have the autoantibody? So a patient presents to the neurology clinic with small fiber neuropathy, one sends a workup, one thinking of Sjogren's syndrome sends the, the Rho and La or SSA and FSB antibodies, and they come back negative, has Sjogren's been excluded? I think one important point we try to make in this paper is that the answer is, is no. So in the, the largest series of patients with Sjogren's associated neuropathy, that had that anti-SSA and anti-SSB sense, only about 50% of those patients actually have one of those antibodies come back positive. So it's really a coin toss. So if one is working up a ganglionopathy or a small fiber neuropathy and the initial pass workup is unremarkable, including SSA and SSB or Rho and Law, one really shouldn't stop there. And what we recommend that those patients uh, be referred for a minor salivary gland biopsy, which is done actually in the lip. And that's much more sensitive and, uh, and can give you a definitive diagnosis. Um, and so there are small studies that, that look at the role of salivary gland biopsy in patients with Sjogren's-associated neuropathies and suggest it's possible that the sensitivity is as high as in the 80s or 90%. And what do you see uh, on the biopsy? So what one is looking for, and there are different degrees of inflammatory changes, but essentially a lymphocytic infiltration, and we have a picture from one of our rheumatology colleagues 
of a pathology specimen that, that one can see. One sees the salivary gland architecture disrupted by uh, an inflammatory infiltrate of, of lymphocytes. So those are the three tests, then. That's, that's uh, splendidly um, succinct. So what about some treatments, then, for Sjogren's syndrome? Can you tell us the order of treatments that you might use in this condition, please? This is a, another area where, unfortunately, there have not been really large-scale trials to determine the best course of therapy for the neurologic complications, let alone really the, the underlying disease. So the recommendations for Sjogren's syndrome in general are that if the patient just has dry eyes and dry mouth, those can generally be managed symptomatically. It's really not until there are these so-called extraglandular features that one would start considering immunosuppressive therapies. And there, one finds reports of everything from steroids to cyclophosphamide to plasma exchange and IVIG, monoclonal antibodies, azathioprine, et cetera, et cetera. Most of these are, are small trials. We don't have randomized controlled trials. And the same is true with the central nervous system manifestations. So if we see a patient with uh, a sensory motor neuropathy, sensory neuropathy, ganglionopathy, painful small fiber neuropathy, and the diagnosis is ultimately Sjogren's syndrome, we gauge a little bit on the, the degree of disability that the patient has. Generally, with the ganglionopathy, patients will be quite disabled from the sensory attacks of the high key difficulties, difficulties with fine motor tasks. So if we, if we prove a diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome in those patients, we often treat with a course of IVIG and then see how the patient does and consider even monthly IVIG treatment in those patients. The patients with painful small fiber neuropathy in, in general, um, depending on the degree of pain that they have, can be less physically disabled. So in those cases, we may treat them symptomatically as you would treat any patient with a painful small fiber neuropathy with antiepileptic just with gabapentin or pregabalin, or one could consider nortriptyline or other tricyclic antidepressants, et cetera. And we really reserve something like IVIG for the cases where the patients are much more severely affected, the pain is intractable, or they're experiencing significant disability. With the central nervous system complications, often if a patient presents with a fulminant acute transverse myelitis, treatment may proceed in parallel with the diagnostic workup. And if an inflammatory rather than an infectious cause is considered, those patients may be getting high-dose steroids even before a diagnosis of, of Sjogren's or neuromyelitis optica or what have you is made. So those patients, again, presuming we've excluded infection, we're thinking of an inflammatory myelitis we would treat, for example, with a gram of IV uh, solumedrol for three to five days. Depending on what we end up seeing uh, thereafter, one can consider more aggressive immunotherapy, but again, it's it's not based on data, but we, we have used IVIG, plasma exchange, and or cyclophosphamide in, in patients we believe that have uh, severe inflammatory myelopathy related to Sjogren that is refractory to uh, less aggressive immunosuppressive therapy. So I imagine people with ganglionopathy, though, um, the, the prognosis even with IVIG and fairly aggressive treatment, we can't really reverse the neuronal loss, can we there? I'm not sure we have the large trials and the large series at this point to, to be able to prognosticate. It probably depends on the degree of disability with which the patient presents initially. So if they're quite disabled and there's been a lot of neuronal damage, you're right that one may be working to keep the, the process at bay and not lead to further disability, although one can see mild improvements in some of those cases. Whereas if someone presents with milder symptoms, you might hope to, to prevent them from 
from getting worse and, and saving them some more progressive disability. Great. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. So um, if you had to give any clear practical message for us then, uh, Aaron, about uh, Sjogren's syndrome, we're going to see these in the clinics and we're not maybe not expecting them so much in a neurology clinic, but they're going to be there. I mean, what, what's the, uh, the practical message that you'd like to leave with us, do you think? The important thing, as with any of the, the rarer uh, diagnoses we think about in, in neurology, is just having it in mind will hopefully make us more likely to think of it and look for it. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, great to speak to you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me.